Amen. Man, it is good to be back with y'all this morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Genesis, the tail end of chapter 5 through chapter 9. And so you'll have to indulge me as I sit while we work our way through the Word. It's either sit or fall. And that would be fun for some of us, but primarily not very much fun for me. And so we're going to be at the end of chapter 5 uh, through chapter 9 in the book of Genesis as we continue to work our way through uh, this journey towards Easter and all that God reveals himself to be through his son, uh, even in the Old Testament. So you'll remember that last week as we concluded and made our way uh, through creation and the fall, that God has created this, this perfect atmosphere, this perfect dwelling place uh, that he's invested in Adam and Eve, his likeness, that he's given to them dominion, he's given to them dynasty, go be fruitful and multiply. In, in the midst of this place, in the midst of the garden, they choose rebellion. They said in their hearts that they would rather be like God in the ways that he's keeping from them than to reveal him to all of creation the way that he's determined it to be. So they rebel against God and God expels Adam and Eve from the garden and in their fall we see the fall of all of humanity. Well soon for this first family as they're expelled from the garden they have a couple of sons Cain and Abel and Genesis chapter 4 tells us that these sons had conflict with one another as Cain kills his brother Abel. He's jealous of the sacrifice that that, uh, that he offers. He doesn't see why what he offered is insufficient, and so Cain kills his brother Abel. And, and from Cain killing Abel, we get into Genesis chapter 5, and there are ten generations of people listed. Ten generations moving down and down and down the line until we come to Noah. And let me pray for us once again as we prepare to look in God's word in the account of the flood and the faithfulness of God through his servant Noah. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, for its clarity. God, I thank you for an opportunity to speak your word this morning, and I pray that it would be impactful uh, to us in our hearts. We are, most of us, very familiar with the account of Noah and the flood. Uh, we've sung songs about it. We've memorized nursery rhymes. We've seen no shortage of cartoon depictions of it, this depiction in art. But God, as we encounter your word, we recognize that it is living, that it is vibrant, that your word applied to our hearts rectifies sin, it calls us towards you, and it shows us aspects of our lives that are displeasing to you. And repeatedly throughout your word, it highlights our need for a Savior. And so, God, I pray that you would renew in us again this morning a recognition of our need for a Savior, someone greater than ourselves, to overcome our inadequacies, to overcome our failures, to give us a picture of faithfulness that we might seek to honor, to submit ourselves to. And so, God, this morning, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who is, in fact, our Savior. And we submit this time to you in this careful study of your word and pray your spirit would be applying it to our lives richly as we have opportunity to move through the text of Genesis. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. Amen. So we're moving through these, these ten generations, and in the midst of them, you'll recognize in verse 28 that you come to the guy who serves as, as Noah's father. And it says in verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, uh, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. And he made this reference to Noah. He said, out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one, speaking of Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. It says, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And then we get this textual clue. He says, and Noah was 500 years old. He fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so Noah and these three sons, and the first time we really find out anything about him directly is he's already 500 years old. So what Moses does is the author of Genesis now is he, he gives us a snapshot. He gives us a picture into what the world of Noah was like. Noah's 500 years old and all of humanity has been living these 10 generations from the garden and look at where they are. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the son of God, son of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took his wives any they choose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. So essentially what God does at this point is he says, Listen, I'm going to do something monumental. I'm going to change the progression of humanity. I'm going to step into this place, and here comes the stopwatch. 120 years from this moment, this is when I'm going to break onto the scene. Verse 4 says, uh, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, some of us are particularly interested in that and perhaps you've read about it in uh, following the Exodus in Numbers 13, 33 when they come back and they give the report and they said, there are giants in the land. We are like grasshoppers before them. And then textually he says, these are the descendants of Anak, the Nephilim. Essentially, what it seems that we have here are the angels who have fallen from heaven, who exist even today as demons, have come in and possessed some portion of humanity. They've slept with women, and they've had offspring who are known as the Nephilim, these men of renown, these, these men of old. So it's not a good time, right? We're not seeing everybody run around and they're saying, we want to go back to the garden, we want to go back. Want to go back. And so they're not doing that. They're not talking about how good and great and wonderful God is. They are living to their full out, their full kind of ability to engage in full sinfulness. And that's what we see in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Wherever God looked, he saw wickedness excelling. He says that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now let that statement sink in for a second. It's not just that wherever God looked, and so he looked in this city, and he looked in that city, and he saw evil winning the race there. But he says everywhere he looked, he saw that the complete occupation of every heart was only evil all the time. Ten generations. Ten, gener ten generations from Adam and Eve walking in the garden, cohabitating, living with God. He is there in their midst. They sin. Humanity falls now we see that evil is just running wild everywhere. 
Verse 6 gives us a sense of God's sorrow. It says, The Lord God regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So he said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven. Why? For I am sorry that I have made them. Now this gives us some sense of the, the, the fullness of the evil of humanity. How incredibly widespread it was, how well it rested in the hearts of every man, of every animal, of, of everything God created, that all of his creation that formerly he had looked at and said it was good, it was very good, now he looked at it and said it was corrupt. Now he looked at his good creation and, and the mankind, the men and women on whom he had placed his image and his likeness, and he said they were in fact evil. But verse 8 stands the chance of changing everything. God looks out, and the scripture tells us that everybody he saw was in fact evil, but something changes in Noah when God looks at it. Verse 8 tells us, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now I think there's a, a way that we can read this and, and, and come away from a mistaken understanding that everybody was evil except for Noah. And so Joel is evil, and Peter is evil, and Zach is evil, and Valerie's evil, and, and Rod is evil. But, but out there somewhere in the midst of these, we find that, that Jeff is righteous, and Jeff is holy. Well, that's not at all what he's saying. Essentially what he says is, you're evil, and you're evil, and you're evil, and you're evil, and, and, and you kind of get the picture. And so he looks at Noah, a man who's completely bought into the evil of those around him, and upon Noah, God entrusts his favor. God found Noah, someone who was spiritually dead, and God graced Noah. And when God's grace hits Noah, when his grace is lavished upon Noah, look at how he moves in kind. Verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, it's important for us not to get verse 9 ahead of verse 8. Noah's completely bought into the evil around him. It's the grace of God at work in the heart of Noah that allows him to be righteous, that causes him to be blameless, and that we see him walking with God. God renders Noah blameless. And so what we see in, in moving on from there is God begins to give Noah an instruction for how humanity is to be dealt with. He gives Noah instructions for how humanity is to be saved. Look at verses 13 through 18. It said, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of it shall be 300 cubits. Its breadth seven, uh, 50 cubits. Its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set a door in the ark in its side. Make it with lower and second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh which, is, which has the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark with your sons, your wife, your, your wife and your sons' wives with you. So God gives Noah this this really seemingly impossible task. He has this one-on-one -on -one with Noah where he tells him, listen, everybody around you is evil, and so this is how I'm going to handle the problem of evil. I'm going to send a mighty flood of waters on the face of the earth, 
and everybody you know outside of your immediate family and every animal you see except for the ones that go on this ark and everything you see all over the land, it's all going to perish. It's all going to die. Noah's told to take a pair of every living creature and all the food necessary for it to sustain life on the ark. Now, to this date, Noah had never seen rain. There was no need for rain to fall on the earth. To this date, Noah presumably had not given himself to become a, a hobbyist in terms of ark building. You know, well, I built this little bitty ark. I built a little bit of, bit of ark. I said, God, that's not such a big ark. I think I can do it. Like, that's not what he's saying. And when we get a sense of how incredibly large this is, of how massive it is, being over 450 feet in length, so about a football field and a half in length, 75 feet wide, and then a full 45 feet tall. We get a sense of the enormity of this task that he has entrusted to Noah. And so the question becomes, how will Noah meet out the grace he has received from God? And what we see in the midst of this is Noah chooses to move forward in obedience. Noah's first characteristic that we see within this text is that Noah is obedient to the Lord. Verse 22 in chapter 6 says, Noah did this. He did all God commanded him. And then in verse 7, we read the same, it's chapter 7 and verse 5, we read the same thing. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. You see, Noah's incredibly obedient to the Lord. But one of the things we find is from the moment that Noah receives the instruction from the Lord to build the ark until the moment he enters into the ark it's not some small period of time that's transpiring what we see is that he's 500 years old the moment we're introduced to him and that when he enters into the ark he is 600 years old so brother worked for a hundred years building the ark so he had full full lifetime of opportunities to say, whew, this ark building, this is tough work. He had a full lifetime of opportunities coming alongside and saying, wow, you're still working on that. Still betting on that promise. A full lifetime of encouraging his wife and his children and a full lifetime of speaking to his family and saying, the judgment of the Lord is coming. Believe on him. The judgment of the Lord is coming in a moment in time when he will judge all the earth. And this ark that you're ridiculing, this ark that you look at and say how pathetic it is and how misguided my endeavors have been, this ark rests the hope in the future of humanity. Put your faith in him and be inside the ark. Noah was a man who had to continue to give himself to obedience. Because we recognize Because Noah had placed his faith in God, he had to do that thing which God had called him to do. Now in in chapter 7, in chapter 7 and verse 11, we read that it's the 600th year of Noah's life. It's the 600th year of his life, it's the second month and the 17th day of the month. And it says, and on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heaven were opened up. So we've got water coming from below, water coming from above. And rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and their three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And they took with them every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind. Every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was breath of life. 
And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in, listen to this, as God commanded him. Noah was obedient to the Lord. And there are things that God may call us to over the course of our life. If you read through Scripture, you'll recognize that as a Christian, that your call is to live in constant submission to God's Holy Spirit as He leads you, as He directs you. Your call as a Christian, as you encounter an indication within the contents of God's Word as to what your life should be like, is to bring yourself in submission to His Word. As a Christian, our lives should be a testament to obedience. We should be those who encounter God in His Word, who experience God through His Spirit, and lead our lives fully in His hands, walking daily in submission to Him, in full obedience to Him. And this is the pattern thus far that we've seen in Noah. So Noah is in the ark, and what we see is the waters begin to rise, and so it's raining, and then the ark lifts off off the ground, and it begins to travel, and the rain is going and going and going. But what we see in this is that we don't get into verse, we don't find out about this until verse 21 of chapter 7, that everyone that's not in the ark has died. He says, in all the flesh that moved on the earth, the birds, the livestock, the beasts, all the swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all of mankind, they're gone. Noah has believed in the Lord, and he's found himself on the ark, trusting in God. But everybody he ever knew outside of his wife, his sons, and their wives is dead. All the other brothers and sisters his father had, any cousins he had, anyone who might have helped him work on the ark, anybody they might have lived close to, anybody he might have have harbored resentment towards, they're all gone. All that was left of humanity were the eight men and women on the ark. Noah had been obedient, but now Noah would have an opportunity to display patience. So Noah's on the ark, and if you look at the total number of days, Noah's on the ark, closed in the ark, after God closed up the door behind them, for 370 days. So 370 days, he's on the ark, a part of this where the floodwaters are rising, he's being tossed and turned. Notice that God didn't say, and you put a rudder in the back with a sail on the front, and you get back there, skipper, and you're just going to steer him around everything. He's not working the rudder. He's not looking out the window. He is stuck in the ark tending animals for the duration of this trip. God has called him to obedience, but now he calls him to patience. In chapter 8 and verse 1, we find that Noah has been on this, and we get this exciting word for Noah. It says, but God remembered Noah. Whew. Noah's out there just kind of floating along, but now we read in the text, God remembered Noah, and he remembered all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the water subsided, and the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed, and rain from the heaven was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mounts of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, on the tops of the mountains, they were seen. And so here Noah is going along, and, and all of a sudden they strike land. And from the midst of this, 
Noah decides to set out to see exactly what it would be like and when they might be able to disembark. This has been fun. This ride has been great. I'd like to get off now. But he's not yet done having to be patient. So Noah pulls back a portion from the roof, this 18-inch gap, and from it he extends a raven. And the raven goes out, and it's going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and nothing. So he waits a little bit longer, and then Noah grabs up a, a, a dove, and he takes this dove, and he extends his hand out the window again, and the dove goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it can't find anywhere to land, so it comes back to him. He reaches out his hand, he pulls it back in, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, and go back over in there. And so he waits another seven days, and then he grabs another dove, and he sticks it out the window, and it goes flying back and forth and back and forth, and it comes back, and lo and behold, what does it have in its beak? An olive branch. So Noah knows not only as the water began to recede, but the waters receded so much that this dove was able to make a perch. Noah begins to see through his patient endurance that the Lord is honoring his word, that in fact the waters are receding, that there will come a day when he's able to leave. So Noah waits again, and then he sends another dove, and this dove goes out and never returns, giving him an indication that the land had indeed dried. Now look at verse 13 of chapter 8. It says, in the 601st year, so this is Noah's 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from the earth, and Noah removed the covering from the ark and looked out, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Now Noah looks, and you can still see places where the water is, is in, in large puddles, but by and large, everything's dry. But he waits. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out, and Noah still waits. You see, Noah was waiting on something specific. He wasn't waiting on a message from the raven or a message from any of the three dove. Noah was waiting on a message to come from the Lord, because in the Lord he had been delivered, and in the Lord he would be delivered again. It says, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your son's sons and your wives with you. So we see this whole parade of men and women and animals begin to disembark, begin to come off of the ark. And so what does Noah do? Outside the first thing he probably did was to kiss the ground and say, I'm never getting on a boat ever, ever, ever again. But the first thing he does, the first thing scripture records is that Noah displays himself as a worshiper. So we know Noah is obedient. We've seen that Noah is patient. But Noah also shows us that he is a worshiper. It says that Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Let me just stop there. I had somebody ask me this week, is this where the unicorns went? I said, the scripture doesn't say, but that's, if they're going to go somewhere and they were there, there's a decent chance that they were there. So yes, this is where the unicorns went. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Notice this, Moses' worship was honoring and pleasing to the Lord. These animals that Noah brought on the ark that were preserved for 370 days have been there for the express purpose of rending worship to the Lord. And so he sacrifices one of each of them in this offering to the Lord. And God in heaven gets a sense of it and he is pleased. But look at what he says. I'm never going to curse the ground again because of man, but listen to this. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
God has taken care of dispensing his justice all over the face of the earth, but the problem of evil in the heart of man remains. The problem of evil in the heart of man, that stain was placed there when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and that problem remains even after the flood. He says the intention of his heart is evil even from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down again every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains seed time harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The problem of evil isn't taken care of. Noah's been obedient. He's been patient. He's displayed himself as a worshiper to Noah and to his children. Again, God gives this task of multiplication. Chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. The earth needs to see humanity spread and flourish once again. So then God goes through and he talks about how his relation to the animals and to creation will be different now. How that creation, that it's still his job to, to subdue creation, but their response to him will be different. Now God gives to Noah, and in fact he gives to all of humanity in this next section in verses 11 through 15, an indication of God's common grace. So the indication and the promise that God wouldn't wipe out the whole world by a flood again is not just a promise to Noah. So when Noah dies, God says, all right, all bets are off, I can do whatever I want. God's promise never to flood the earth and never to destroy humanity like that again is a promise to all of humanity, and it is an extension of his common grace. Chapter 9, verse 11, he says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and all the waters shall never become a flood to destroy all flesh. God gives the rainbow as an indication and a reminder, a sign of his covenant between God and humanity that he's never again going to move to destroy all of humanity in this way again. So you have to think that as Noah is raising generations and as his children are raising generations, they have this amazing visual every time it rains and they look up in the clouds and they see the rainbow and they say, that is a sign that God's never going to do what you heard that we went through again. That's a sign of God's faithfulness. That's a sign of his covenant. That's a sign of his blessing. That is a sign of his love sustaining us even under the necessity of his justice. And we've seen... Noah really is this instrumental figure in the preservation of humanity. Noah was obedient to the Lord and he built the ark. Noah was patient and waiting for the Lord. Noah was a worshiper unto the Lord. But check this out. Don't miss this. Noah is a sinner in need of grace. Noah is a sinner in need of grace. The last little bit of chapter 9 and verses 20 uh, through 24 take place some years after Noah left the ark. Now they happen just really quickly in the text, but one of the reasons we know that they're several years later is because he makes a reference to Canaan 
who would be Ham's fourth son. And so some period of time has transpired from when he was displayed as a worshiper, living righteously, into the acts that we see displayed here, verses 20 and following. So it says, Noah, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. So he's out there, he's working the ground, he plants a vineyard, and he drank the wine. And so there's some time that's elapsed. He didn't just drop the seeds in the ground and out pumps the wine. He drops those in a cup. They turn into fermented wine. And he's like, and he's drinking. No, so there's some long extended period of time that has transpired. Look what he says. He drank of the wine and he became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. Noah got wasted and he passed out. Noah had a riotously good time on, you know, by himself and he passed out in this tent completely uncovered. Now his son, Ham, comes in and he sees him, verse 22, naked, laying there. And what does he do? Does he help cover up his father? Does he, does he help preserve his father's honor by doing this? No, he runs out and he goes to his two brothers, Shem and Japheth. He says, you're never going to believe what dad did. He's naked back there in this tent. He got snockered and passed out. Verse 23 says, then Shem and Japheth took a garment. And they laid it on both their shoulders and they walked backward and they covered the nakedness of their father. And they were so concerned with preserving their father's honor that it says their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. They wanted to preserve the honor of their father. Ham just wanted to run out and tell his brothers what he had seen. But Noah's sin created the opportunity for Ham to sin. Noah, who had been obedient, patient, Noah, who had been a worshiper, gave himself to overindulgence, drank to the point of intoxication, and passed out and created an opportunity for his son to sin. Verse 24 says, When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And listen to how Noah responds. Noah says, Cursed be Canaan. This is Ham's fourth son. So I say that some extended period of time has transpired from him leaving the ark until now. Cursed be Cain and a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. On the basis of Noah's sin. We don't see that sin extended to the full of humanity. We see that happen as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. But on the basis of Noah's sin, one of his sons and the full line of their family suffer the consequences of his sin. Noah was a sinner in need of grace. Now, what we see in Noah is that he was incredibly obedient, patient, a worshiper, but the idea that he is a sinner reminds us that there's someone so much greater than Noah. You see, in some ways, Jesus is, is a true and better Noah. We see in Jesus that he was obedient. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 tells us that Jesus submitted himself to God and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, now Noah's obedience is remarkable. He's obedient for over 100 years. He does everything God tells him to do. But Christ's obedience took him all the way to the point of death, even death on the most wretched instrument of death that, that could be imagined in the first century, death on a cross. We find that, that, that Noah was patient, that he wasn't out there and saying, God, when are you going to let me off the ark? God, when are you going to let me off the ark? But he waited for God to open the door to the ark, and he did not leave before that moment. We read of the Lord in 2 Peter 
In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Moses was patient, but he ultimately had no power to do anything about it. All of his impatience would have ultimately only shown itself in disobedience. But the Lord's patience is extended to us who are caught up in the midst of our disobedience because he wants all of us to walk in repentance. He wants all of us to come to know him in the fullness of life. He wants all of us to experience the regeneration brought by the Spirit. God is patient towards us. Noah was a a worshiper. When he left the ark, he bowed down and he sacrificed one of all the clean animals before the Lord. But what we find in Jesus is one who is worthy of worship. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they they existed and were created. Noah was a worshiper, but Jesus is one worthy of worship. Noah recognized that he owed an act of worship to God for carrying him through the flood, for sustaining his life for those 370 days, for extending to him grace. He was a worshiper, but Jesus is worthy of our worship. Now, Moses was a sinner. Moses was a sinner. I mean, not Mo- well, Moses was too. But Noah was a sinner. That's why it's so incredibly important that we don't get his grace ahead of his righteousness. When God looked down and he allowed his favor to rest upon Noah, God was being gracious to him. And allowing his grace and favor to rest upon him, he allowed him to walk in righteousness, to be blameless, and it to be said of him that he walked with the Lord. Now we recognize that That you and I are sinners, but we also recognize that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he is not a sinner. But he works on behalf of sinners. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. John offers this word of correction to those who are living there who, who thought that any sin in their lives was an indication that God wanted nothing to do with them. Hey. That any sin in their lives was an indication that God wanted nothing to do with them. So he said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It is God's desire for Christians not to sin. It's not God's desire that we live in complete rebellion to the law, doing whatever we want, saying, oh, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want, I'm saved, I can say whatever I want. It is God's desire that we may not sin, but he goes on, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. When we find ourselves in sin, Jesus serves as an advocate. He argues on our behalf. He says Jesus is our advocate, Jesus the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice of our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We recognize that Noah in his sinful state desperately needed a Savior. And we see a picture of that Savior in Christ Jesus. And before us, we see this terrific model of what it looks like to move forward in enabling grace 
to receive the grace and mercy of our God, to move forward from that in obedience, to be patient in the midst of striving, and to live as one set apart in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Now, you may go back and you think, well, you know, I, I know that they said everybody was really evil and, and there was only evil all the time for every inclination of their heart. But I really feel like as humanity, we, we've advanced so much beyond that. We're so much more, not sinless, but refined. All we've really done in this massive expanse of time is to perf- perfect the ability to sin well. All we've really done in this massive expanse of time is to become better and more efficient at sinning. And then not to speak of it as such. God was so incredibly patient. And for 120 years he waited before he sent the waters of the flood. Listen, the Bible tells us plainly That there will come a day, and we don't know when it is, and Christ doesn't know when it is, only the Father knows, but there will come a day when God peels back the sky and Christ returns in judgment. And we can't know when that time is. And so there's an element of urgency for those who have not submitted themselves to the Lord. There's this element of, of, of not knowing whether you have today and tomorrow or next year or until you're 99 years old. He could come back at any moment. And we are certain that He is coming back. And so this warning out of 2 Peter, not to look at God's patience as being slow, but to look at God's patience as being a gift extended to you. We come to the understanding That God delights in you and I, those who have submitted ourselves to Christ, to be obedient worshipers to Him over the course of our lives. Now this may sound like to you working. This may sound like to you doing something on the basis of this. And I just want to set this straight. Paul gives us really clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and then finishing in 10, he says, "It It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. Your salvation is not something you accomplish. It's because God came out and he lavished his grace upon you in the person of Jesus. He says it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's not because you've been marginally better than anybody else around you. It's not because everybody was evil level 10 and you were evil level 9 and God said, I can work with this. I can work with a 9. It's not a result of works that no one may boast. But look at what he goes on to do for those of us who get saved. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, before you ever came to know him, before he ever saved you, he set aside good works for you to walk in. God has not saved you unto your own freedom and license. God has saved you and freed you, redeemed you, brought you from death to life, from darkness to light, from being blind to finally seeing so that you might walk with him. So that you might walk in faithfulness. And so that the faithfulness of your walk might be a testimony of the enduring quality of his love in calling the men and women around you who yet even today still walk in darkness, still walk in death, 
and still walk with eyes shut. Man, let us be faithful. Let us be faithful Christ followers to be obedient, to be patient, to be worshipers, and to recognize how deep the stain of sin was in our lives before our God graciously removed it by an application of our Savior's blood. And let us not call the people around us, the politicians, the pundits, the people we see on our street that have flags and colors and ideologies that we disagree with, let us not call them to being better versions of evil people. But let us call them to a Savior who died and who poured out His blood on them so that they might not be better evil people, but so that they might be redeemed men and women, saved unto Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your goodness, for your righteousness. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts to bring healing. God, that you would restore those of us who have had a sense lately that sin is winning the war in our lives. God, that you would remind us that Jesus Christ served as an atoning sacrifice for us. So any waywardness, any setbacks, any moments that sin has beginning to look like it's winning the war, God, it's only a battle. You have soundly defeated sin and death in uniting us to Christ. So God, would you call us back to faithfulness? Would you call us back to walking with Jesus? And God, I want to pray for any in this room or any in this hearing who have yet to submit themselves to you. God, they may not particularly like the idea that from, from your heavenly abode that you look down and you see them as being evil and set apart unto you. But God, that you would redeem them from their ways. God, that you would extend to them your hand of grace. And God, that even today that they would set aside in their hearts to turn from sin, to turn to Jesus. Jesus, whoever came sin and death might rule and reign in their hearts and they might know him as Savior and Lord. And so God, we submit these things to you and we ask for your blessings upon this time. In Christ's name, amen.